Take your Bibles, if you would, please, this morning and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. While you're turning, let me just sort of give you the, uh, the gist of where we're headed today. Um, I want to talk about the lost art of dialogue. The lost art of dialogue. Uh, people actually talking to one another. Now, I realize with uh, COVID, that's uh, caused some roadblocks, but even up to this point, uh, we've lost the ability to dialogue, mainly due to the internet and technology and so on. But we want to talk a little about this because this is causing lots of problems. When you go back to the book of Genesis in chapter 11, uh, you might be re remember that's the chapter where uh, the, the human race comes together and says, let us build us a city. Let us build a tower unto heaven. Um, and God looks down and goes, oh, apparently they don't need me. I'm not in the conversation here. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give them different languages and that will force them to scatter. That's where our, our different languages come from, our nations come from, because the Bible gives us revelation on that. I believe that today Satan is mimicking that. I think Satan said that really worked out well. God had his way. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send out lots of terminology all over the place that's going to have two or three different meanings. So that when anybody says something, it's going to set the other person off because that's not what they intended it to mean. The person that's sending it out intended it one way, the listener hears it a different way. There was a time when, when you could speak and everybody spoke the same language here in the United States. Those days are gone. That train left the station a long time ago. And I'll give you a list of terms here a little bit regarding that. And I think that, the, that because the world is divided in so many ways, the church has become very much divided. I keep up with all the different things that are taking place church-wide, and I just see so much division over a lot of these terms. And nobody's speaking the same language because nobody is dialoguing. People are just sitting, send, and things go out, 140 characters, whatever, and things are traveling throughout the internet, and different people are getting different views and different on almost every single topic, and few people seem to know what they're talking about. And that has a little bit to do with, with the video that I also did, but I want to share some of these thoughts this morning. How did this happen? Because when I think of division, the church, I don't mean RBC, I mean the church at large, we are division champions. Congratulations. There is more division in the church today than I've ever seen. You, you can hardly say anything, send anything out that it doesn't mean something different to one generation, to another, different thoughts on this, and it just is a firestorm because nobody is dialoguing. Nobody is actually talking. A little bit later on in the message, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul and watch him set up a dialoguing situation with the world, with Jews, with different philosophers and so on, and see how he handles that. So how did this happen, and what's the remedy? How did this happen? I'm going to do three things before I take a look at, at, uh, at Philippians chapter 2. I think there are three things that have contributed to the lack of dialogue. Number one, generational gap. There was a time, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, if you were a blacksmith, your son was going to be a blacksmith. If you were a farmer, your sons and daughters would be farmers. But technology has allowed us to have limitless different uh, occupations and those days are gone. You don't necessarily follow in your father's footsteps or your mother's. You may, but it's unlikely. 
as it was years past. And so when people dialogued in the past, they were all speaking the same language. Uh, I didn't follow in my dad's footsteps, though I tried. It didn't work out for me. But still, my dad and I, uh, our generation might have been separated by, you know, a quarter of an inch. Uh, my generation is separated from my children by, you know, a foot, foot and a half. And my generation is separated from my grandchildren by 3,000 miles. In, not even in the same world of discussion or talk. I have to run everything by younger people to figure out, what did I say? What, was, what does that mean? It's a different world. And Satan is using that to divide families, to divide nations, to divide cultures, to divide races. There's division everywhere, and I'm sure you're aware of it. It's all over the place, even over how we handle COVID and the race issue and the economy and everything. There's just endless, endless division. So there's very little dialogue. As a matter of fact, when there is any discussion, it's usually on the internet, and if somebody wants to debate somebody, they'll simply say, well, science says, statistics show, the data proves. What science? What statistics? What data? The ones you're watching or the ones your parents are watching or somebody else? Where are you getting your information from? It all depends. And it all means something different. It all means something different. Uh, old versus young. The older generation can often disrespect the younger generation because they think they just don't get it. And the younger generation can look at the older generation and disrespect them. Ah, they're, they're, they're out to lunch. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. If you were to go to the Old Testament first, you would find that there's lots in Proverbs about listening to people that are older because they've been around the block a little bit. But Paul says this to young Timothy when he writes to him in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says, don't let anyone despise your youth. And Timothy was probably under 40 when that was written. He would be a millennial in those days, so to speak. Don't let anybody despise your youth. And then he goes on and he qualifies it. Make sure that you are living in purity of heart and in speech and your faith. Meaning that you can be a very mature young person. All right? But I think because of differences, some people at my age can look at a younger generation and say, listen, I, I've, I've been around the block. I get it. I've, I've been to this rodeo. I've seen this movie. You, know, you don't need to tell me anything. But that's wrong. That's wrong. And I'll tell you what. It is true that the older generation has been through more, and they've picked up some wisdom along the way, hopefully. And they've understood a few things, hopefully. They know where some of the you know, pitfalls are, hopefully. But here's something that we don't have. And I'm beginning to learn this. I don't think that just because we have wisdom and experience means we have awareness. Awareness. I am not aware of everything that's going on. This is why every year I get with a few teenagers, 18, 19 years old, and I say, what's going on? Tell me what it's like to be in high school today or college, because I know it's different from where I came from, and I want to be able to relate to the congregation so that I'm not just saying something out of a 76-year-old mouth that isn't touching anybody. I have to be aware. That's the wisdom they can give me. As a matter of fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm getting ready to meet with a young man that I actually dedicated when he was a baby about 40 years ago. And I want to sit down, and he's been in this church all his life, 
And I want to sit down and I want to ask him some questions so that I can become aware. He's got wisdom that he can pass on to my generation. And even if we agree or disagree or whatever, I want to know what's going on. I want to dialogue. I want to talk a little bit, not just through a text or, you know, 140 characters or whatever. I want to sit down and talk. So that's one. The second is the language barrier or just language itself today, the different terms that are used. These are all landmines, and I think the enemy is using this to his full advantage. God is not the author of confusion. It is the enemy. Now, I'm going to run off just a quick little list here, and if you kind of react, it just sort of sends, you know, chills up your spine, or your hair stands up in the back of your neck, or you don't like that, or whatever, that's my point. It'll make my point. Here we go. Racial reconciliation. What does that mean? The Bible says there's only one race. If you're going to reconcile, you have to have two races in order to reconcile. You've got to have two opposing parties to reconcile. The Bible says, by one man, all nations have come. There's only one race. So how do you reconcile? To one set of ears? Oh, I, what we mean is, you know, blacks and browns and whites and yellows. That, that's what we mean. Another person goes, oh no, there's only one race. There are different ethnicities. So right away, just that alone triggers something from one person to another. White supremacy. What does that mean? What does that even mean? Is everybody supreme who is white? Clearly not, but it triggers something. And when it goes out through the internet, and it goes out all over the place, particularly when it's followed up with science says, data proves, and so on, why, you're just just in trouble. You just don't get it. Those are different words. Black lives matter. (laughs) Boy, they ought to matter. I hope so. They've been through a lot, and I've fought for them, and I've met with them, and I've talked to them. But there's also a movement called Black Lives Matter, and it is totally anti-Christian, completely anti-Christian. Which one are we talking about? The one that that, that shows sentiment to, to, to blacks? And if you say Black Lives Matter, that doesn't go over real well with a lot of police. Do police lives matter? Do blue lives matter? means different things to different people. There are blacks that don't like the term Black Lives Matter. And, and, and all of these things, you're walking on eggshells because you don't know how the other person's interpreting it when you send it out. Whenever it goes, it just it means different things to different people. Social justice, right now, some of the greatest scholars and pastors, saddens me, in the reform camp, men I just deeply admire, are horribly divided over social justice horribly divided over it. They think it affects the gospel and so on. It's over my head. I don't even understand the argument all that well. I have people on staff that follow a lot of this better than I do, and I don't have time to know what every single one of these terms means all the time in every single situation. But it's divisive. Uh, Systemic racism. Does that mean that every single person in the United States is a racist? It comes to the word Systemic comes from the word system. Your body is a system. If you cut your hand, you don't say you have a systemic cut. But if there's something flowing through your blood that's a disease of some kind, then you say it's systemic. It's going through their, your whole body. Systemic racism is everybody er- means different things to different people, and boy, does it ignite, and it just sets off a firestorm. Take a knee. Colin Kaepernick a few years ago. If you take a knee 
And are you disrespecting the flag? Is, was that in his intent? Is that the intent? Are you disrespecting the military? Boy, it sets people off. If you don't take one, then what, what do you care? Don't you care about the race? You can't win. You cannot win. Because it means different things to different people. Because there is no dialogue. Nobody is sitting down and talking. What do you mean by that? Well, I'll send it out in 140 characters. That's what I mean. Boom! All over the place. Um, uh, critical race theory. Who's got time to study that? That is such a complex issue. Huge issue. Cancel culture. They're talking, can't, there are some things in our culture I'd like to cancel. Cancel culture? What does that even mean? What do these things even mean? Well, I would say the third one, generational difference, uh, language barrier, because words mean different things, and the most dangerous highway in the world, the internet highway. A lot of good comes to the internet, a lot of bad comes to the internet. Let me read something to you regarding the internet. I just wrote these things down myself when I consider the internet. Number one, uh, there are no speed limits. There's actually only one speed limit on the internet. It travels at 186,000 miles per second as soon as you hit send. It travels at the speed of light or speed of electricity. Some engineer is going to come up later and tell me I'm off by three thousandths of a billionth of a second or something. At any rate, it travels fast, all right? Uh, there's nobody policing the internet. Well, that's not totally true. That is not totally true. If you have a particular moral conviction and a particular uh, internet provider of some sort doesn't like that, they can take you off. They can do that. Here's another one. Uh, you can change lanes without um, putting your blinker on. You can just change lanes, just without even looking. Uh, you can have this particular view and then change lanes very quickly and send something else out, which just causes more wrecks along the way. You can run over anybody that's in front of you. You can sideswipe anybody along the way. You can carry dangerous information that is absolutely not true. You can pack cargo of lies. You can create all kinds of false narratives all over the place by just hitting send. There are no rest stops. Massive numbers of words are moving out per second. False narratives. Uh, uh, there, there's no weight limit as to what you can carry in the way of, of causing conspiracy theories. And people are believing almost everything they see out there. Then they get into one particular lane, they hold that lane, and that's what they're hearing, and that's where they're getting their information from because there's no dialogue. Nobody is actually talking. And it's divided families, it's ruined friendships, it's done a mess. Texting, tweets, social media is not dialogue. It is not dialogue. Only by pride comes contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Proverbs 13.10. Because there is so much division, there has to be an awful lot of pride that exists today. I'm not sure people are even listening, even when they read things on the internet and all the different things that are being sent out. So what is the solution? Well, there's no simple solution, but I think there is a solution. I think there is a remedy to this, and it starts with the church. If the church is divided, the world is not going to be interested in looking at the church and saying, that's what I've been looking for. They're going to go, they're worse off than we are. They're fighting all the time about everything. So let's take a look and see what the Apostle Paul says regarding this, the, the sense of, 
of unity. I talked a little bit about this a few weeks back out of Ephesians 4, but, but this is Philippians chapter 2. Just, just soak in this a little bit as I read through it. Verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if we're Christians, we are united with Christ. If any comfort from his love, I hope we have that. If any fellowship with the Spirit, I hope we're experiencing that. If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now here's what I would ask Paul. If Paul were standing here, I'd say, Paul, that sounds good. How do I do that? How do I get like-minded when I'm in a different generation? I don't see things exactly the same way. You know, I have a different social experience. How do I become like-minded? Well, he's reminding me that I'm in Christ. That's the beginning. But then he says this. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. If you're getting ready to dialogue, if you're getting ready to even send something out on the internet, just make sure it's not out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Make sure you think through before you hit send or before you talk to anybody about anything. Is there a humble spirit? Because God gives grace to the humble. Uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 11 verse 2 says wisdom comes through humility. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If everybody had all this, you would see a lot of unity, a lot more than we're experiencing right now. Considering others better than yourselves. I've got to win this argument. I just have to prove this person that my data is better than theirs. That's not the way to go into anything. I want to listen. I want to dialogue. I want to hear what this 18-year-old has to say even though I'm 93. It doesn't make, I, I want to learn. I'm going to go with a humble spirit. Maybe there's something that this generation can teach me. Maybe there's something I can teach them. Verse 4, each of you should not look only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Is my interest that I want to win the war, win the battle, get my argument through, prove my case? Or is it really in interest of the other person? There is so much that happens when you are listening, when I am hearing what the other person is saying. Oh, so that's how a 19-year-old sees life. Oh, gosh, I never would have seen it that way. That's not what it was like in my day. But it's their day. It's their day. And they're aware. And I'm not always aware. I better listen. Verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Oh, brother. Your attitude. Let's look at his attitude. Verse 6. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He did not give up his deity. He gave up his rights to deity. That's why he becomes a man. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Here he is. He becomes a servant. We're watching humility unfold in this text. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, that's humility. That is humility. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. It struck me in the last service as I was reading that. Therefore, God exalted him. I wonder, I wonder if God would do the same with the church. 
I wonder if the church, if it had the same mindset and the same humility of Jesus, whether God would exalt the church and make us an example to the world. I think that's what's going on here. I think that's exactly what's going on here. Exaltingly, it says in verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, having penned these words here, we now move into some practical side as to what it ought to look like. Verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Now, watch verse 14 carefully. It's what happens here. Do everything without complaining or arguing. What would happen if the church obeyed that? We're not, we're not, gonna, we're not going into an argument. We're going to dialogue. We're going to talk, all right? So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault. He says, um, uh, in, in a crooked and depraved generation, that's every generation, by the way, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that, that I may boast in the day of Christ, etc., etc. He goes on. The point is, is that the church should be a light to the world it should be a beacon on a hill. It should be something that the world looks at and says, I want that. I don't see it. I don't see the world looking at it. And I think we should be the generation that experiences Jesus's not only return, but answer to his prayer that we might be one. Now, I told you earlier, we're going to look at the Apostle Paul as he deals with a very mixed group of people. He's got some philosophers that come from different camps. He's got Jews and Gentiles. He's got to go into a marketplace and, and deal with, with various issues because he wants to present the resurrection. Let's watch how he handles this. Starting in chapter 17 of the book of Acts, and Paul has, in, in, at the beginning, he talks about how he opened the scriptures and he reasoned with them out of the scriptures and the synagogues. Now he is in a mixed crowd. Verse 16, we're going to kind of walk through this Listen very carefully to how the Apostle Paul handles this. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, full of temples. He was distressed. It bothered Paul to see that people were worshiping something that was completely false. And he knew that he had the truth. And it, it just bothered his soul. It troubled him. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. Now, you will rarely, if almost, maybe, maybe ten times in all my years here, have I ever given you a Greek word, because you know I know nothing about Greek. You see that word reasoned? That word is diolegomai. And it means dialogue. It's the word dialogue. He is dialoguing. There's a two-way street here. He's saying some things. They're saying some things. They are reasoning. Come, let us reason together. Not get angry. Not yell at each other. 
Not send out a bad message. No, we're going to reason. He's dialoguing with them. And look at it. It's, it's the Jews and it's Gentiles, people in the marketplace, day after day. Verse 18. And here are the two different camps. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? <laughs> he's, he's going to talk about the resurrection. What's this guy trying to say? They want to dialogue. We don't do that. What, what do you mean by this social justice? Could you explain to me? Oh, no, no. I'm going to send you out all my information. Watch this video, and then we can all get mad at each other. All right? What is this seed picker is really <laughs> what the word actually means. Others remark, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Who is this guy? What's he talking about? They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Ooh, somebody rose from the grave? Ooh, it's not like our God. Verse 19, then they took him and brought him to a meeting in the Areopagus. This is a place where people would meet and gather and dialogue and debate and so on. Where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you are saying. We want to dialogue with you. All right? Verse 20. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. How refreshing. 2,000 years ago. How refreshing. What does cancel culture mean? What does systemic racism mean? Could we sit down and talk and find out if we're speaking the same language? No, I'll just send out 140 characters and tell you what I think. And just blow everybody up. And get everybody mad. These, are, these, are, these aren't believers. These are people saying, we want to know. We want to learn something. These ideas. What do they mean? Verse 21. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They must have had some kind of work. I'm not sure what. Verse 22. Paul then stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens. That's a wonderful greeting, a, a people of RBC or whatever. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful greeting. I see that in, that in every way you are very religious. In other words, I see that you have spiritual interest. He isn't blasting them. He isn't condemning them. He isn't accusing them. He's just simply saying, I see that you're interested in spiritual matters. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this transcription, to an unknown God. An unknown God? In other words, they had lots of gods, but just in case there was one out there that they didn't know about, that could be you know, somebody they need to call upon, they have an unknown God. They have a God they keep in their hip pocket that they can pull out. It's, it's sort of like a, a trump card or something that you've got. And because they, they, they aren't sure. There's an unknown... I, I noticed you have an unknown God that is, that is out there. Now what you worship as sometimes unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. I'm going to fill in the blank. 
Now, would you like to dialogue about that? Would you like to hear what I have to say? Because you asked me, you said you wanted to know what I have to say, so I'm going to talk. The Lord God, who made the world and everything in it, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Let's pause for a moment. When you go back to Jonah in the Old Testament and you see Jonah on board the ship, the men on board the ship are non-Jews. Where, who is your God? Where do you come from? What does Jonah do? He immediately starts talking about natural revelation. My God made the sea and the dry land. When Paul is talking to these people in the Areopagus who are just mixtures of people, he's talking about the God that made the sea and the dry land. But when he's talking to Jews, he uses the scriptures because he knew they believed the scriptures. These people don't. So he's got to find sort of a commonality. He's got to say, I know for a fact that eternity is written in your hearts. I know for a fact that you're looking up every day and you're going, how in the world did that get in there? Now that's maybe that's the unknown God. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to fill in the, the blanks on that one. So he says, this is the God that made the heaven and the earth, and he's not held in temples. Verse 25, and he is not served by human hands, as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He is talking about a God so much greater than their God. He is revealing a God so sovereign, so powerful, they have never known this God before. This God is not an unknown God. This God can be known. Verse 26, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. Hey, men of Athens, you in the Areopagus, the God that you've been looking for, he's right here. He's right here, and you can know him. You can know this God. We're getting there. I'm using a little natural revelation. I'm telling you where you got your breath from, where you got life from. We're, we're, we're getting there. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. <gasps> Paul, you're quoting secular sources. Why don't you quote scripture? Because they don't believe the Bible. They don't know anything about the Bible. So what does he do? He goes to common ground. He says, you know, some of your, your poets say that we're his offspring. Well, God created everybody, so we are in that sense. So he's finding some common ground here. He, he wants to talk. He wants to dialogue with these people. He wants to find out what they're actually thinking rather than just telling them what he's thinking. He's, he's sort of working this. Verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. Whoa, how can you make something and we become the offspring of something that you've made? No, 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 no. This God created you. He, he's making them think. He's making them think. They, you don't create your own God and that God creates you. He's making them, them think. Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands, commands everyone everywhere to repent. Change your mind about this unknown God and believe in the one true God. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Now he's going into the gospel. 
And he hasn't quoted any scripture. He's quoted his secular poets, but no scripture. But what he is doing is he is saying, there's going to be a day of judgment. You know what he's appealing to? He's appealing to the fact that eternity is written in their hearts. He's appealing to the fact that in Romans chapter 2, it says the law is written in his, the people's hearts. He's appealing to the fact that everybody has a conscience. He's appealing to the fact that he knows everybody's guilty. And he's appealing to the fact that no one knows how to get rid of the guilt and the shame and all the troubling things in their heart. So he is weaving this argument and he's, he's going to dialogue with them so they can ask him questions about this and move right in to the gospel message. And then he says this, verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. <coughs> can, we, can we dialogue? Can we talk about this? Don't just send me an email, Paul. I want to, I want to sit down in the marketplace and dialogue. And you can still do that today. There's a lot of open-air places that you can go and you can still dialogue. We, we, we want to know, we want to hear more about this. Verse 33, at that Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. That doesn't sound like today. That doesn't sound anything like today. Boom, sand, can we talk? Oh, you believe that? That's interesting. That's fascinating that you believe that. It's not what I believe, but tell me why you believe that. Well, I believe that because of this. Wow. Wow. I've never seen it from that angle before. I've never seen that before. Well, let me tell you what I believe. I, I believe this about the human heart. Really? I never, I never thought of that before. I've always believed this. And you start building a relationship. And it's all around the gospel. And some are going to believe, and some won't. Some will sneer, and some will believe. But the only way the church is ever going to be able to have this happen is when the church humbles itself and admits that we do not have all the answers to covid to race issues, to everything, and just stick with Jesus, stick with the gospel. You've heard me say this many times, unity is the fruit of corporate humility. If the church, not just here, but nationally, uh, it, it just gets on its knees. I'm not asking anybody to give up the strongest views regarding great doctrines and the truth. I'm talking about the little side issues for which we do not have all the answers. We don't know all these things. That's where dialogue comes in. This is why I get with my black brothers and sisters and I say, what's it like to live in this nation with your color skin? I want to know. Help me. That's why I get with 18-year-olds and say, what's it like being a teenager in this world? I'm unaware. Make me aware. What's it like doing this? Years ago, I used to get with different businessmen. I'd go to their offices and try to spend a day in their office what do you do? What is it like doing this? And it just, it just I, I want to be aware. And I can't be aware of absolutely everything. We've got people here that keep me abreast of a lot of things, but I can't be an expert in all these things. But when I look at this, I'm just so clearly reminded that when Paul gets to everything, he doesn't get sidetracked. 
he goes right back to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He gets back to the fact that Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. He gets back to the fact that he knows all men have eternity written in their hearts. He gets back to the fact that he knows that everybody understands through natural revelation there has to be something greater than us, including atheists. That's what he goes with. He doesn't go out and get sidetracked with everything else. And he just, but he's going to dialogue. He's going to sit down at a table there in the Areopagus. He's going to do some preaching. He's going to let them ask him some questions. He's going to talk. And I just say this to those of you that are watching or here. It's still always around the message of the gospel, the good news that one has risen from the grave. And that good news is that our sins have been forgiven. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who died, was buried, and rose again and paid the penalty for your sin, you are given everlasting life. That's his message. That's what he sticks to. He finds common ground, but he never leaves the basics. And so if you've never trusted Christ, ever, and you find yourself confused with all the devices that exist today, I pray that today would be the day of salvation in your own home or ever, that you would call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to give you everlasting life. And for those of you that are believers, let's be humble. Let's consider others. Let's listen. Let's dialogue. Let's learn. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege that we've had today just through this amazing technology that can be used for wonderful things to send the gospel out into homes right now that perhaps a number of people would come to Christ today because they know deep in their own hearts they're frustrated. Uh, they can't get rid of the guilt, the shame, the feelings of despair and they must come to the only one who can relieve them of that, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray for that. We pray that the church, the church itself uh, would be united uh, not unified in every single way, but, but truly united in the cause of the gospel and to learn to dialogue with one another. And it's our desire to see that you be the one to receive all the glory. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.